Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. This is part one of a several part series that might turn into a longer part series if there's interest. Uh, and it comes via the Hartman Institute, a a think tank and thought leader in the Jewish world, both in Israel and the United States, uh, who does many, 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 many things. One of the things they do is pr- produce curricula. And they're particularly adept at producing curricula that would be interesting both for scholars and rabbis to dive into and first-time students of Judaism uh, because they don't shy away from uh, uh, core traditional texts, uh, nor do they present it in such a way that makes it uh, anything but accessible to those who are just thinking about Jewish ideas for the first time. And this is a new curriculum, I think, called Foundations for a Thoughtful Judaism. And it's basically a, a high-end and thick and rich, not quite an intro class to Judaism, but but a reintroduction to Jewish principles. Some of the texts that you'll confront if you're here all the weeks, you've seen before. And one of the um, one of the arts of Jewish study is to look at something that you've seen, you can probably even quote by heart, uh, and come to it with a second naivete, as if, as if you're reading it for the first time, which is, a, which is a challenge, but a beautiful challenge, right? We can do that with one another as well. We've known each other, some of us, for years and decades. What is it like to confront the other almost as if it's an entirely new encounter? So what's it like, as we're going to do in a few minutes, to confront Lech Lecha, as if we don't really know the story of Avram and his being sent on this journey of faith. So tonight's class, which, um, which, which we could turn into a two-hour class, but we're clearly not going to, is to start to focus in on the question of what faith is in the Jewish tradition. And there's almost a pre-question, like before we get to Avram and before we get to God and before we get to Heschel and, and uh, Maimonides, it's interesting just to consider in our own minds what it even means to say that we believe something. We use that phrase all the time. How does a belief get into our minds? If you want to get neurobiological, what is a belief? Is it a neurotransmitter firing? Do we believe something because we know it to be true? And why do we know it to be true? Because we accept an expert or we imbibed it organically from our upbringing or we were, we were here and we were convinced there. And just think about that scientifically. What does it literally mean in the brain to have believed this and I read something or I heard something and now I believe that? Could you trace that in the mind, right? The, the mind is a non-corporeal um, reality that is based in something very bodily, right? So it, there might be a time in future scientific inquiry where you could actually, and this is both wonderful and scary, trace a thought. But what does it mean to actually say, I believe that or I believe in? By the way, Professor Micha Goodman, who also is on the Hartman Institute, uh, says that there's a very important distinction between believing in and believing that. Believing that is binary, because if you believe that, then you're either in or out, depending on what community you're part of. Believing in is open-ended and vague, right? And so we sometimes get into trouble in American thought and in religious thought. We say, I believe that. But if we're all in the category of I believe in, then we can have a serious conversation with each other. So what we're going to be looking at is the biblical cortex for how belief begins. And then if we get to them, three different possible responses, one from the medieval era, one for the modern era, as to how it might come to be that we believe in anything, in particular that we believe in, uh, in a God, in a creator, in a, a prime mover who's responsible for everything that we're experiencing and who's a glue for our religious experience. 
So let's start from the beginning. It's the first source. It's on page, well, it's the first page. It was on page three in the booklets. Uh, verses that I know that you've confronted many times. Uh, and here are the questions that I want you to think about as we're reading through these verses. Is there anything in these texts that suggests why God chooses Avram? Uh, and is there anything in the text itself, not what you conjure about it, anything in the text itself that suggests why Avram says yes? And is there a mystery in this text? And is that is the mystery in this text in any way a window into what the faith experience can be? Let's read it as if for the first time. Vayomer Adonai el Avram. By the way, this is the first verse of the first parsha after Parshat Noach. So the main narratives we've had in the Torah so far are Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Tower of Babel, and some genealogies. Right? Some other stuff as well, but this is the first time we're having um, a, a, an encounter between God and a human that has to do with, um, with being in a relationship as opposed to simply setting out basic principles of life. By Yomer Adonai al-Avram, God said to Avram, there was no precursor to this, Lech Lecha, take yourself or take for yourself. It's unclear if the Lecha is understood as like a direct object or something having to do with this is for your benefit. Me'artzacha, from your Eretz, from your land. Umimoladacha, from the place that you were born, from the word holad, which means to be born. Umibet avicha, and from the house of your father. For the moment, particularly if you're like Rashi students, like don't Rashi this. Try to take a, a meta approach, not a, oh, how come it says your land, your birthplace, and your house, your father's house, isn't that the same thing? Those are interesting questions for a, for a Midrash class, but we're trying to look at it from a broader theological perspective. What's, what's, what are the main lessons that are being conveyed here? So go from all these places, El Ha'aresh, to the land, Asher Areka, to the land that I will show you. Ve'ezchal gadol, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Va'avarechacha, I'll bless you, whatever that means. Like we translate va'avarechacha into the word bless, not that that really demystifies what the notion of a bracha is. Va'agad la'ashemecha, I'll make your name great. Ve'heyeh bracha. You will be a bracha. It's unclear if that last two line is a, um, um, a uh, what's the word? A command? What's the word for command? It's, yeah, but in English. Uh, imperative, thank you. Or if it's a prediction. Is it a be a blessing, exclamation point, or I predict, God says, you'll be a blessing. Those who bless you, I'll bless. Or those who curse you, I'll curse. And through you will be blessed. Who? All of the clans of the land will be blessed through you. The next verse, for some reason that I cannot explain, came out backwards in Hebrew. So if you're good at reading Hebrew left to right, uh, so uh, God, um, Avram went just as God said, just as God said, and his the Avram ben Chamesh. I'm not going to try to try to do it backwards in Hebrew, but we can do it in English. Avram went forth, and the Lord commanded him, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran. Okay, a few more verses. Avram at Sarai Ishto. Avram took his wife Sarai. We had Lot ben Achiv, and Lot his uh, nephew. If we were doing Rashi style, we'd wonder why Lot was mentioned twice in the previous verse and in this verse. 
All of the stuff that they had accumulated, midrashically, that's understood as converts, by the way. Rashi brings that, that the, what, what did they acquire? They acquired people who were seeking along with them to find greater meaning in the world. Similarly, all the souls that they had made in Haran, what does it mean to make a soul? Maybe it means to convert. They left to go to the land of Canaan. They left and they arrived. He went down into the area of Nablus, northern um, Samaria, to the Terebinth of Mareh. There were Canaanites in that land. Always complicated when you get to a land and there are people already there. But we'll gloss over that for now. And there was another revelation. God appeared to Avram by Yomer and said, I'm going to give your land, this land to your offspring. He built an altar, letter nine, to the God, Hanire Elav, who appeared to him. Kind of moved on towards the hilly area, Mikedem Levetel, east of Beit El. He pitched his tent. He built another altar, he began to invoke God's name. That's a lot in eight verses. A call, a, an agreement, a taking his family, a planting himself, and even within the new land, he has several different locations that he calls his home, and he begins to crawl, uh, call out to God. Okay, so from the text itself, not from your you know, childhood or, or adult thinking about the text already, is there any indication in the text as to why God chooses Abram and why Abram chooses to have faith in this voice that comes out from the heavens? And if there's mystery in this story, what is it? And how does it relate to the, for the question of faith? Those are the questions on the table. And if you're on Zoom, you can, if you want to answer, please un, uh, you know, let me know if you have a question or a comment. What do you guys think? Yes. And I'll, I'll repeat for the Zoomers what uh, each person says here. Edward. So what Ed says is that it's possible to read the story suggests that God chose Avram, but God could have, could have chosen you know, Shlemiel to his left or Shlemiel to his right. There's nothing in the story that suggests something unique or special about Avram. Midrashically, we read into it, he is or he was already a proselytizer for God. That's the Kol HaNefesh But God picked this guy kind of almost, not accidentally, but it could have been anyone, and, so, and a relationship was formed. Larry and then Diane? Really interesting. So what Larry reminds us of is that already we know the character Avram is not anchored to a particular place, and maybe this is an indication that faith begins with someone who's already willing to be on some kind of a journey, who's not overly loyal to saying exactly right here. That it's a, it, There's a dynamic uh, to faith. Diane? Wonderful. So Diane's saying two things. I'll just reverse them. One is, this is the, Torah, the story the Torah chooses to present. It doesn't mean it's the only story that happened, right? I mean, in, think of any scene in the Torah and, and even lean into it as the notion of it, of it having happened in history the way it's presented in the Torah, which, of course, people can have different positions about. It doesn't mean that everything that happened in that moment in history is presented, right? Certainly not everything that happened between Joseph and his brothers at the pit is being recorded in the Torah. We're getting a terse presentation. So perhaps what we're being recorded is the first time God tapped on someone's shoulder and the person said yes, and the first thing you said is that um, that that even if Avram doesn't know where the place is, G- God has foreseen 
or has, has, has imagined where this faith journey is going to take Avram, and God feels comfortable tapping on this one shoulder. Deborah? Uh-huh. So what Deborah's saying is that the language of the call is, is sensitive to the fact that Avram may already feel not connected to his birthplace, not connected to the place of his father. So by naming that, it heightens the fact that Avram, Avram at the time needs to go somewhere else. Uh, you know, th- this, sorry, Steve, thank you. Yeah. So what Steve is saying is that there's a strategy here that God picked an influencer, right? Like a, had, a, had, a, had tremendous, had like 10,000 TikTok followers and and it was an was an Avram was a Av, he's, uh, Steve is doing an etymology of Avram which is not said explicitly in the Torah but those who know Hebrew um, roots can play with it Av Father Ram High you know exalted and this and that the strategy here was ele- was choosing someone who could share the message far and wide AJ Chabad yeah AJ is pointing out that. Even though the call comes to Avram, as as they move from Haran down to Canaan, they're already a small clan, a family business. They're the the first shlichim. Um, it seems to me that while we don't we, we can we can guess we we don't obviously know exactly why God chose Avram. We don't know why Avram chose to follow God, but we do know that Avram was what I would call radically obedient. He doesn't even ask questions. Right. This is uh, Av- that character of Avram not asking questions is brought out with greater clarity in Parshat Vayera, where there's a contrast between his radical, frightening obedience in the narrative of the binding of Isaac, contrasted with a willingness to push God in the story of Stom and Amara. Right, moving down the number of people who who are righteous, who are required to be there to save the cities from 50 down to 10. But in this scene. He all, all he does is say yes and follows. And if Avram were to tell the story, if we were to bibliogematize this, if we were to conjure Avram, right? Avram, you were hanging around in Haran. You were on the move already, but you were hanging around, and a voice told you, I'm God, I'm going to make you great, and you went, and we asked Avram, why did you go? It would be really interesting in a bibliodramatic moment to find out what the answers were. So here's my question to you before we go to um, some kind of attempts to, 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 to anchor a faith experience um, in certain criteria. It, does anyone, is anyone here willing to go into their own history and share their Avram moment? Because we all got here on some level, right? We all got to a place in our life where some aspect of belief and faith is present, right? It may be for some that nation of Israel and people of Israel and community of Israel and Knesset Israel is more important than Elohei Israel. But it's hard to fathom a traditional Jewish community with a notion of faith in the God of Israel being completely absent. So is there someone willing to share where, where you would pinpoint in your life the, the, the moment of the experience that most closely mirrors this, where you went from not being on a path where God is present to, on your way to Eretz Israel. Diane? Literally. Yeah? Wow. So we have actually, in some ways, a real Avram and Sarai amidst us, right? It began with a, a professional opportunity, a sabbatical. And on the sabbatical, God, I'm going to use God as a filler here, which is a weird thing for a rabbi to say. But God 
called on you on some level and said, this is where you ought to be. And you literally picked up and went from Haran, Ohio, right, uh, to uh, back to the land of Israel. So that's, that, that's a radical transformation. And I would say a radical obedience to some inner call that's not completely rational. I was being gentle. Yeah. Yeah. So remember what Diane said when and hopefully if we get to the Heschel quote later on in the class. But there was some call that pushed against rationality to say, I don't belong here. I belong there. And there's something bigger uh, operating this system than just I. Good. Anyone else? Yes, Irv. Uh-huh. So Irv was talking about long, long marches for for justice or great causes, journeys where there's a momentum, there's a like a, a stone gathering great moss as as people come 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 to the come to the truth that, that particular action represents. Look at the next text, and again, this 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 one shiur we could do three or four times as long as we're going to, but I want to be able to see if we can get at least briefly to all three. This is source two. It says page four on your source sheet, and I'm going to read. Normally, I like calling on people, but because I want to make sure that everyone. Uh, on the Zoom, if they don't have the text in front of them, hear the text. I'm going to read it. This is Aviva Zornberg, one of the great teachers of Torah, alive today, uh, based in, originally British, based in Jerusalem, uh, teaches around the world. This is her take on Avram, and this is what uh, I'm going to posit as one of three possible among many things that can anchor one to one's faith experience. Here begins the journey of Lech Lecha. For the first time, a journey is undertaken not as an act of exile and diminution, and she puts in parentheses Adam, Cain, and the dispersed generation of Babel. I'm just going to interpolate here an interesting observation that there have been people sent already out from their home base several times in the Torah, but this is not in order to get them out of somewhere, but more. But now she can say get them to somewhere. But as a response to a divine imperative that articulates and emphasizes displacement as its crucial experience displacement as its crucial experience. That could be an interesting phrase just to meditate on in terms of how that relates to our faith experience. For what is most striking here is the indeterminacy, great word, of the Germany. What is left behind, canceled out, is defined, clearly circled on the map of Abram's being. He left something known. But his destination is merely, quote, the land that I will show you from your land the landscape of your basic self-awareness to a place that you will know only when the light falls on it with a difference, which is a lovely turn of phrase, right? So Avram means being asked to leave something concrete, known, rational, familiar, and being sent somewhere new, but the newness will only become clear when it's, when it's pointed out at some indeterminate moment in the future, right? This, these are the kinds of journeys that are both, um, well, it depends on, do you feel, like if one feels like, to get mundane, is a road trip the most extraordinary thing in the world where you start driving, you're not sure where you're going to end up? Or is that un- unsettling for people because it's hard to be away from, uh, from, from something that is known? Midrash Tanchuma, which is a, a rabbinic commentary, espouses this view of Abram's first trials. Quote, is there a person with credulity, incredulity, who travels without knowing to what destination he travels? A journey without apparent destination, absurdity at each step, resonates with what Diane was saying before. The Midrash gives us mocking voices that weave through Abraham's consciousness as he travels. Look at this old man traveling through the country looking like a madman. 
How would you sum up Zornberg's take on Avram and the faith journey in a sentence or two? What's the pshat, the simple reading of what Zornberg is saying, Rabbi Chaim? So what Chaim is saying is that maybe Zornberg is reading this as almost like like the flow of a river going backwards. If the sweep of human history is to move from nomadism to creating fixed places on earth, the first message to Avram is to almost, almost go backward into being a Bedouin, travel to a place, you're going to pitch your tent in many different places, the constancy will be me and my relationship with you. Larry? Okay. Uh-huh. The Peshat of Zornberg. Yeah. Right. So what Larry is saying is that uh, that that um, Aviva Zornberg's read of this, both admiringly, because Aviva Zornberg is a devoted devotee and penitent of the faith tradition that comes from Avram. She's a very from woman, but that it began with a certain amount of madness. If I may, the same madness we attribute to people of newer faiths who go around espousing truths and then acting on those truths uh, of faiths that are born only 50, 100, or 350, or 600 years ago, right? We ascribe a certain madness to that, right? She's saying, if we're honest with ourselves, there's something mad and absurd. The softest way you could say it is in, um, irre- um, irreconcilably mysterious about this. There is nothing known here. Just go do it. The moment in my life where I felt most Avram-like through the prism of Zornberg was at Lev's Bris. At Lev's Bris. I had as a rabbi officiated at, I don't know, 100 Brises and 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 reading the party line and celebrating and mazel toving and and reassuring the parents that you know there's there's barely any pain and the moil is very good and uh and 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 and, and it's all a good thing and i remember i have this 8 day old child and i'm about to hand him over to rabbi waknin and i i almost couldn't do it i almost couldn't do it like what, what what the hell are you doing to my child? My child is fine the way he is, right? And I, and, and it was really hard for me. And, and, and the way I think about what permitted me, I hope it was the right thing to do, to hand over left the moil was Zornberg's read of Avraham. I didn't know this particular text beforehand, but th- there, there is an absurd madness to it. And on the other side of that is a door that leads to meaning and, 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 and long-term connection to what, you know, across space and time. But, but there's a nervousness. There's a nervousness when you're following a certain mad intuition with no rational proof that it's the right thing. Right? And that's also, by the way, one of the things that differentiates faith from living a, philos- a purely philosophical life where everything can be proven or at least attempt to be proven. Larry? Right. Right. So what Larry says is that this is a Rav Soloveitchik explanation or at least description of putting on tefillin or any other you know, daily ritual uh, practice that looks bizarre to an outsider, right? You know, lulav, etrog, anyone, right? Hoshana um, Rabba, no, that makes sense. What are you talking about, Joel? Um, that the only possible explanation that why we're doing it is that we're embracing a benign, wondrous madness. Tom. Great. So just for the for those on Zoom, that Tom is is distilling Zornberg's read of Abram as the move from the known to the unknown, which Tom, as a as a writer and a teacher of writing, uh, associates with the mind of the artist and and the creativity of the artist. Just because that's an important inflection point, I know there are other hands up. Look at the next text because the Rambam Maimonides, whom Zornberg knows well, reads it almost entirely opposite. Right, particularly as we think about what Tom said, the move from the known to the unknown. 
So this is one of the many places that the Rambam talks about the core of faith. And the Rambam, Maimonides, uh, 12th century, early 13th century, Spain and Morocco and Israel and in uh, Egypt, philosopher, Aristotelian philosopher, and rabbinic sage, and halachic sage, and mathematician, and scientist. This is, he's interestingly, he's not, this is the section where he's talking about idolatry, but he actually goes into the story of Avram and his emergence from idolatry. Again, I'm going to read just so that people who are on Zoom who may not have the text have it. Those wise men of that era, the Rambam is not using the word chachamim here the way that the Talmud uses the Chachamim. These are not the rabbis. These are the people who who are considered to be wise pre-Avram. Kagon Konehem, like their priests or the leaders, Medamin She'en Sham Eloha. They had this impression that there was no other, there was no God, Elah Kochabim, except for the stars, Balgagalim and the spheres, the planets, Shinasuat Surota Elu Biglalam Uludmutan. That 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 they had that those that the gods associated with those celestial beings had kind of made all the images that we see. Avaltsur Olamim, the rock of ages, right? The eternal rock, one of the many names for God. Lo Hayashumadam Shayamakiro. No one knew that God back then. Velo Yodo did not know of them. Ela Yichidim Baulam, except a few people. Kegon Chanoch, this would take a long time to unpack, but um Certain biblical characters where there's some, some mystery about their existence in a few sentences or two in the early chapters of Breshit. Chanoch and Metushelach, Methuselah, Noach, Shem, Ever. Noach, Noah, and Shem and Ever, uh, two descendants of Noah. V'al derech zeh, hayah olam holech. And on this path, the world continued. And I would add, continued without any certainty that it would ever change. And I sometimes think about that. I recently was in... Um, in Utah on a biking trip and I'm looking up the mountains in Zion Canyon and thinking about the hundreds of millions of years that the rocks were there that had no idea we were coming, right? Like, like didn't know we were coming. And, and, and it, it's, it, it was infinitely more likely that we never would have come than that we came. That the rocks were just going to be the ones that were there and they weren't going to know that they were there, but they would have been there anyway. Right? So the world could have gone on like this, according to the Rambam, shrouded in the non-knowledge of what he says became knowledgeable, uh, known. Until Avram was born. So according to this first source, Maimonides seems to think that there was a, a, like a, a, a radical lack of knowledge of that which really should be known, and there was something cosmically significant about Avraham's birth. He's going to read Avraham as not just an eeny, meeny, miny, mo, but someone who figured out something important. Next, halacha. When this great man was weaned, he began to think. Interesting, like, shotet can mean to, like, um, to explore. It can also mean to, like, hover over, over water. He began to go on these mental explorations. He was still a kid. He began to think. Night and day. He wondered. Hey, ach, efshar, sheye, hagagal, hazeh. How could it be that this sphere, no heg tamid, was always behaving as it does? Velo yellow manhig. It's an interesting play, and it's, it's better in Hebrew than English. It was no heging, but there was no one manhiging. It was, it was, it was acting, but there was no one acting upon it. Or how could it be there's no one acting upon it? Umi yisabevoto. Who was spinning it? 
right? Interesting awareness of the of 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 the spinning nature of the earth. It couldn't be that the earth was spinning itself. No one taught him. No one gave him this knowledge. <coughs> he was stuck in the pagan, you know, yuckiness of ore of the of the Chaldeans. Amongst the idolaters. The not so smart ones. Mo and his father and his mother, nice people, but they didn't know from God. All of them were idolaters. He was worshipping with them because it's hard to pull away from your milieu. But his heart was was wondering. and understood. Until he captured a certain pathway of the truth. And he learned this kind of line or pathway of righteousness because of his own preternatural ability to imagine, understand things. He figured out that there was a God. So this is actually a radical read of Parshat Lech Lecha. It's almost as if the Rambam is saying it's not the God called Avraham, but Avraham called God or Avraham became aware of God and Avraham uncovered God. That's not what the text says. The text says, God taps Avram the shoulder. The Rambam says, what it means is that Avram finally became aware that there was a God tapping on his shoulder. There was one God, this God is the operator, Hagalgal of the earth, create everything, there's nothing in the world of creation besides this God. The Adasha Kolam Toim and understood that everyone else is making a mistake. And the thing that caused them to make this mistake, is that they they divided the cosmos and they worshipped the stars over here, but and the and the sculptures over there. The truth that could have been accessible to them got obliterated because they had divided their faith experience amongst almost anything they saw. Uvein Arbaim Shanai was forty years old. Here Kir Avraham et Boro. Avraham understood his creator. So I, I set up the, uh, the Maimonides text in contrast to Zornberg. If we, if, we, if we take Tom's view of Zornberg, that Avraham's path was from the unknown to the known, Maimonides would say back to Zornberg, as it were, 700 years before Zornberg, what? Sorry, from the known to the, from the, known to the unknown, right? Zorn, uh, Maimonides would say back to Zornberg, it's the opposite. That what was this faith journey from the, the, the radical lack of knowledge about how things actually were, finally to the one truth that needs to be known, right? The, the, the science of faith and not the art of faith, right? The conclusiveness, the clarity that this is the only thing that makes sense for understanding how the world is to be. Now, I'm not sure that Zornberg, the, the, the student of Torah, like would... would would disagree with Rambam directly, but she understands the beginning of faith to have been in a different direction. And Rambam was a scientist and philosopher. And for Rambam, it doesn't make sense if you don't break through the notion of the prime mover and say, why do I believe in this? What else could I believe in? Right? Stephen Hawking could have a very strong response to the Rambam. Right, right. There's another answer in the world of physics, but Rambam didn't know physics. Rambam just knew there had to be some explanation for all of this that was comprehensive, and not that it was divided into different, you know, fiefdoms of the universe. Reactions or thoughts on the Rambam? Because I want to get to Heschel briefly before we close. 
What's that? Thomas Kuhn. I don't know the name. Uh huh. To those on Zoom, Larry is saying, go read Thomas Kuhn. Okay. Yes, Joel. Right. So Joel is saying that if we place ourselves in the Avra mode, Rambam is saying that at some point, mystery will hit up against a wall. Unless there's something you can discern through the cloud of the mystery that makes sense to you, you're going to jettison it. That's true when we go through, um, you know, the, 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 the reconstruction of our family narrative and our national narratives, right? At some point, the mythos of the United States of America and the mythos of Zionism and the mythos of our family of origin will break apart unless we can come back to it with a sense of not only have I inherited this as mother's milk, but it actually makes some sense. I can actually stand behind it. I can, I can actually, I can actually, I can hold this flag with a sense of, 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 of certainty and if not certainty, clarity and confidence. It's not just, I don't know, but I'm following the voice. Let's look at Heschel because we're getting late. Um, Heschel, 20th century philosopher. Some people call him even a prophet really the greatest artic articulator of the experience of the person of faith uh, in the last 100 years, from, at least from the Jewish perspective. Uh, it's the last page of the source sheet. It says page six on it from one of his uh, many books that gets into this, Man is Not Alone, A Philosophy of Religion. Authentic faith is more than an echo of a tradition. It's a creative situation, an event. For God is not always silent and man is not always blind which I, I hear him saying is, there are times when the portal is open, but it's not frequent. In every man's life, and he means every man and every woman, there are moments when there's a lifting of the veil of the horizon of the known, opening a sight of the eternal. This is him pushing a little bit against the Rambam, right? It's, it's beyond what is known into something which he's calling eternal. Each of us has at least once in his or her life experienced the momentous, reality of God, to which I would say maybe each of us has experienced it, but he's inviting us to think back through our life and maybe even read back into moments where we might have missed it. Each of us has once caught a glimpse of the beauty, peace, and power that flow through the souls of those who are devoted to God. But such experiences or inspirations are rare events, going back to Larry. But if you're a davener, you daven every day knowing that you might not have this experience tomorrow or next week or next month right? To, to weave them all together, right? You, you, you go on this, this, um, this Zornberg pathway, not knowing what's going to happen. In a Maimonidean way, you have a sense that, that there, there's some purpose and some, some truth coalescing all these things together, but you're not sure when the revelation is going to come in a Heschelian way. To some people, they are like shooting stars, passing and unremembered. And others, they kindle a light that is never quenched. And I think there he's referring to people who have epiphanies that don't last and people who see the light and then they live their life that way till the day they die. The remembrance of that experience and the loyalty to the response of that moment are the forces that sustain our faith. That sentence deserves to be read again. The remembrance of that experience when the portal is opened and the loyalty to the response, meaning staying true to what you felt you were experiencing in that moment are the forces that sustain our faith, are the things that keep us putting on tefillin, touching the mezuzah, and being involved in this whole journey. In this sense, faith is faithless, faithfulness, loyalty to an event, loyalty to our response. And he would say that the core response is not Avram actually, but Sinai. 
that the Jewish faith experience is loyalty to our people's record of what they experienced at Sinai. Uh, in in 40, 37 minutes, we're not going to, you know, come to any grand conclusions about our faith journeys. But it is, it is, it is interesting to think about how infrequently, even in a traditional shul like ours, we actually talk about this stuff. We go through the motions a lot, right? And I don't think the motions are meaningless. I think the motions are meaningful. But we don't that often as a community go down to the core questions of what do we believe, why we believe it, when did we start believing it, what might stop us from believing it, and are, what are we willing to do along the journey even in those moments that we question that belief and might a revelation be coming. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.